He's Hacker. I like a good serial killer documentary. He hasn't taken the pounding that wide receivers take. Uh, it's just a pound job, and, and guys are tired towards that, that four minutes. And he doesn't shy away from opinion. I would be lying to you if I said I had not heard things. They're like a bad rash. You hear a lot of things. Some are true, some aren't. It's Hacker After Dark on 1010XL. And a very good Thursday evening to you, Jacksonville. It is Hacker After Dark, 1010XL, 92.5 FM with Dylan Denmark. The Hacker Ryan Green with you. Glad you are with us as we have a new defensive coordinator press conference. Ryan Nielsen, the brand new DC for the Jacksonville Jaguars, met the media earlier today. We will certainly listen to some of his thoughts and respond to some of his thoughts here in just a moment. Also, the guest lineup tonight, David Behrman, Pro Football Network, will stop by in just a bit. Also, Justin Mello of the Draft Network will stop by. Justin not only does work for the Draft Network, he also does work for the Tennessee Titans with SB Nation. So we'll do a little AFC South talk with Justin as well. So a lot of NFL talk tonight as we are 25 days away from NFL free agency. Franchise tags can begin uh, begin being handed out next week. February 20th through March the 5th is the two-week window for the franchise tag. That's when we need to keep our eye on Josh Allen here in Jacksonville. And, of course, the NFL Combine. Two weeks from today, they are on the field in Indianapolis for the NFL Scouting Combine. It comes at you quick after the Super Bowl. There is absolutely no question about that. Every night here on Hacker After Dark, we do kick it off with a big deal of the night. And Dylan Denmark. Let's do that right now. Time now for the big deal of the night. What's the big deal? What is the big deal? It is a big deal. On Hacker After Dark. Ryan Nielsen meets the media earlier today here in Jacksonville. First and foremost, there were a lot of things to take away from the press conference. We will hear some of his thoughts in a moment. I will give you my overall thoughts in a moment. But the first thing that jumped right out to me about Ryan Nielsen You can talk about the X's and the O's. You can talk about the type of defense and his relationship that he's trying to build with guys like Josh Allen and Trayvon Walker. There's a lot of things that can be discussed when it comes to Ryan Nielsen. But first and foremost, my overwhelming thought was that guy has an absolutely fantastic mustache. All right. There are some guys that just can pull off the mustache look and the new defensive coordinator here in Jacksonville is one of those guys. I, for one, thought the mustache was gone, and maybe it is gone for the most part. I know very few that have the mustache look. Denmark, I don't know. Maybe it's my age compared to your age. Maybe guys your age have a a mustache. Okay, so the mustache is still in with the mid-20s? Yeah, that and mullets. Oh, mullets. I do live out in redneck country, so I might be, uh, you know – the 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 minority in this that's true you are out very very far on the west side out there but congratulations to ryan nielsen because some guys can pull off a mustache and brother let me tell you something ryan nielsen can absolutely pull off a mustache plus i found out that apparently he's a disney guy 
he got the job or got the call from Doug Peterson, the text, when he was on as a, It's a Small World at Walt Disney World with his kids and his wife. So not only does he have a great mustache, but he's a Disney guy. Perhaps he and I can exchange Disney pleasantries when I introduce myself to him. So all around good vibes for me going towards Ryan Nielsen. Now let's get down to it. A couple of things he was asked today. First and foremost, Ryan Nielsen, what is going to be the Jaguars' identity about their defense moving forward? There's some things, fundamental things, that tackling, takeaways, ball disruption, and pursuit. And that's what we're going to be about. Tackling, takeaways, ball disruption. You know, you have to be a good tackling defense to be a good defense. Takeaways are the number one way to limit points. Uh, ball disruption is um, making the offense play not on time. You know, we're, we're, we're taking away a, a running lane or making a ball bounce or disrupting the quarterback. And then pursuit, you know, keeping the ball inside, proper angles, you know, running and hitting. And so uh, that's what we're going to be about. That's what we're going to stress. That'll be the first thing we talk about with the guys before we even start talking scheme or, you know, stance or anything like that. We'll, we'll start at, at that will be our foundation and we'll go from there. The obvious question that everybody has, because Ryan Nielsen had options. There were a lot of people that were interested in talking to him. What was it about Jacksonville that led Ryan Nielsen to want to come to Duval County? Well, a lot of things. Um, so really, you know, when you, when you start looking at an opportunity, you look at the people in the building. Um, you look at the head coach. Uh, coach Peterson um, did not know him personally before this, but you do your research. And um, you talk to people that have worked with them, know him. I was fortunate to be on a staff that had a coach that had worked for Coach Peterson before. And um, he said some unbelievable things about him. And then you started calling around just a couple of guys. Just, you know, you, you want to check. In, and it's so important that you work with good people. And, and we're so close in this thing. And we spend so many hours a day away from our families with these men in here. And, and you, you want to be around good people. And so that was the first thing. Um, and then Trent, you know, you hear the same things, you know, and so you start working your way down. Uh, Mr. Khan, the owner, I mean, you know, what's the organization about? How is the owner? And then didn't know that they built the facility. And then you start doing the roster research and you kind of know a little bit. But then as you start digging into this thing, you're like, you know what? This is a great place. This is a place that, that we want to bring our family to and be a part of. This is a place that we want to help take the next step. Um, and so. You know, when we kind of looked at the whole package and everything that was going on, it was there was no doubt this is where we wanted to be. It's good to hear. There's no question about it. Again, Ryan Nielsen did have options, and he chose to come to Jacksonville. I know people in Atlanta were sad to see him go. And finally, Ryan Nielsen was asked about Josh Allen and how important Josh Allen will be to this defense. Yeah, I mean, a lot of production, right? Very important. And so when you got a guy like that and, and – uh, and you want them back and think that's going to work out. Uh, would be really excited if that works out. Uh, really excited to work with them. Nothing but great things. Talk to Josh and, and uh, yeah, he's been he's been fantastic. And so that'll get worked out. Get him back and, and get him get him going and and hopefully get him into improve. That's the ultimate goal, right? Just take one. If we can just get that much better next year, really, what does that look like? That's pretty exciting, right? And so that's kind of what we, we want to work towards not going to throw stones. I mean, I'm not going to throw stones in a glass house. All right. I said this when Tennessee media was absolutely gushing over the Brian Callahan hires their head coach. Every fan base, every team media 
this offseason believes their team hired the best head coach or the best coordinator that they possibly could. It's all very positive right now about Ryan Nielsen, as it should be, right? Just like it's positive everywhere in the league with these hires. That's what the offseason is, the months of positivity. We will know in September and certainly by October if the Jaguars made a good hire or not. That's when reality will set in, and you hope the reality of it is that they did make a good hire and that Ryan Nielsen has this defense playing at a much higher level than Mike Caldwell had them playing in 2023. Nothing bad is going to come out of an introductory press conference. Nothing bad is going to happen during OTAs or mini camp or training camp. It's all going to be great. It's all going to be glorious for every team in the NFL that has a new coach or coordinator on their staff. Again, we won't find out until the season kicks off when, unfortunately for some, reality will set in, and what reality will show is some were good hires and some were terrible hires. But, of course, we have to go another seven or eight months until we have some proof of that. So for the next seven or eight months, let's get fired up for Ryan Nielsen, and hopefully he will be the guy that the reality is it was a good hire as opposed to what we know is going to happen around the league, half or even more than half of these guys that get hired this offseason will be out of work in two or three years. That is the reality of where we are in the National Football League. we got a great guest lineup coming up tonight. We will begin with Pro Football Network, really an up-and-coming website. David Behrman was with ESPN for almost two decades. He is now leading the charge at Pro Football Network, PFN, as their chief content officer, I love PFN. We have a lot of guys from Pro Football Network here on Hacker After Dark. Let's talk Jaguars. Let's talk Trevor Lawrence. Let's talk AFC South as well. And the big storylines heading into this offseason with free agency now just three and a half weeks away. David Behrman, Pro Football Network, to kick it off next. Hacker After Dark on a Thursday night in Jacksonville, Florida, and we're glad you're with us. It's 1010XL, and it's 92.5 FM. Let's ring up another guest on the All-Pro Roofing phone line. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville, your home for the Jacksonville Jaguars. The offseason now in full swing. We heard from Jaguar new defensive coordinator Ryan Nielsen earlier today. Of course, free agency 25 days away before that the NFL combine in fact they'll be on the field in Indianapolis two weeks from today and before that franchise tags and yes that potentially means Josh Allen can start being handed out as early as next Tuesday with all that as a backdrop let's go to my buddy David Behrman of Pro Football Network formerly of ESPN he's now the chief content officer at Pro Football Network. You guys know I love PFN.com, and David's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. David, how you doing? Good, good. How are you guys doing today? David, we're good. Thank you for the time, and congratulations on the new opportunity at Pro Football Network. I've had a lot of PFN guys on my program over the years, certainly an up-and-coming website when it comes to the world of pro football. Absolutely. Very excited. Uh, I came here almost a year ago. It was uh, late March, early April last year, just before the draft. Uh, it's been an exciting first year, starting with last year's draft and then culminating with the Super Bowl last week. Uh, building little by little, we're trying to grow as much as we can. And 
a very exciting year. It was a very successful year, and I'm happy to be on with you today. Yeah, David, we certainly appreciate the time. It was a very exciting year for the Jaguars through about Thanksgiving, right? Eight and three, things yeah. were going great. And then all of a sudden, losing five out of six, they become only the sixth team since the year 2000 to go from eight and three to flat out missing the playoffs. David, we've had five or six weeks now to digest what happened. In your thought process, what happened here in Jacksonville? Well, obviously, I think it starts with, with the quarterback, you know, the injury to, to Lawrence uh, in that Cincinnati game that, that obviously set them back whenever you're dealing with backup quarterbacks. But when he did come back, I don't think he was healthy as he needed to be and obviously turnover prone at that. Uh, it was just, you know, a whole, you also had injuries to the offensive line. You had injuries at wide receiver. Uh, much like the Miami Dolphins, you guys suffered a whole bunch of injuries. And the surprising thing that I thought really was the fact that you had that division one. Uh, and, and it's weird because the AFC South, you always expect one team to run away with it because the other teams aren't as strong. And in back-to-back years, it came down to the very end because the team collapsed. I mean, Tennessee should have won the division two years ago, uh, lost a whole bunch of games in a row that allowed Jacksonville to come in through the back door and win. And the same thing happened this year. Jacksonville had a huge lead, um, blew it towards the end, and all of a sudden Houston comes through the back door. And if, if you look moving forward, you, know, you have teams like Jacksonville and Houston, which are really two good young teams, that the division is better than people expect. Uh, and I think it's going to be better than people expect. Indy's not going anywhere. They're right there as a potential playoff team. And obviously Tennessee is going to rebuild. Uh, but – you know, Jacksonville has all the pieces. I, I was just as surprised as anybody to see the collapse. It came a year after you had that winning streak that took you to the playoffs and then the big comeback versus the Chargers in the playoffs. Uh, it's If you go back and look at the 2023 season, it may not be at the forefront, but when you think about it, that Jacksonville collapse should be one of the bigger surprises of the season. Yeah, you could argue one of the more disappointing teams in the NFL this year were the Jacksonville Jaguars. Again, David Behrman of PFN Pro Football Network here with us on 1010XL in Jacksonville. David, you alluded to Trevor Lawrence earlier. There's a thought here locally about Trevor, but I'm always curious the national perspective. You were obviously out in Vegas last week for the Super Bowl. What is the thought about Trevor Lawrence now after a, I guess, below average for his standards year three? He's sort of an enigma out there because if you, they always blamed Urban Meyer for the lack of success for what Trevor did that first year. Oh, it's Urban held him back, Urban held him back, and then he had interim coaches, yada, yada, yada. But he didn't have a very good year. I have very good friends of mine that work for Pro Football Network who had him as a dark horse MVP candidate. They had him as a must-take fantasy guy. And he, for the most part, disappointed this year. I don't know if it's the coaching staff or the system or the injuries, but he has absolutely not been what they thought he was going to be. But at the same time, and I've used this argument with Tua in Miami, what's the alternative? Because you still have a franchise-type quarterback. Is, is really the move to give up on that and go find a free agent who's 38 years old and or 40 years old and a Kirk Cousins? No, like you're still married to Trevor Lawrence. What you got to do is you got to make sure the system's correct and you got to make sure he is what you need him to be because there isn't an alternative. And if you look at the NFL, there's probably 10 to 12 quarterbacks that you can look at and say, hey, 
there really isn't a better option. And there are, you take two in Miami, and I think Lawrence fits in the same category. You're going to have people who say he's my guy, and you're going to have people who say he's not good enough. But the people who say he's not good enough never come with the solution as to what the, like what you need to do. Like Miami, you don't give two, can't give two of that fifth-year option. You can't re-sign him. You can't give him 45. What are you going to do, draft another quarterback and start all over again? No, neither Jacksonville nor Miami or in a position to draft a quarterback because they're not low enough in the draft. So you got to make it work with what you have. And as far as your question about what the industry thinks, I still think people look at Trevor Lawrence as somebody who can be a star for the next five to 10 years because he was a can't-miss prospect at the number one pick. And I just don't think he's been handled properly in the NFL, starting with Urban. You know, last offseason, Trent Baalke, the Jaguar GM, was decided to run it back, basically. They went 9-8. and eight. They beat the Chargers in the playoffs. They battled Kansas City. And they didn't do a thing in free agency, not one thing. Now, some of that was financial because they spent a lot of money the year prior, but they could have done some things, could have moved some things around. They chose to run it back, and they were 9-8 and eight again. Go figure, right? So you're not going to see that again this year. There's going to be player movement here in Jacksonville. And not to get too much into the minutia, David, but the two names – Josh Allen and Calvin Ridley, the in-house names here in Jacksonville. I think Allen is almost destined for the franchise tag at this point, which means Calvin Ridley's future is uncertain here in Duval County. What's a quick thought from you on both Allen and Ridley and how vital do you believe they are in the Jaguars' future plans? I absolutely think you need to bring them both back, and obviously the ideal plan is to sign one of them to a long-term deal and franchise the other one and figure that out down the line. It doesn't look like that's going to happen. It looks like you're going to have to use the franchise tag on Allen. He would be the one I would choose of the two. But you got to try to sign Calvin Ridley back, and I know obviously there's been issues with Ridley and that predated his time in Jacksonville, but you look at what Ridley has meant to that team, um, and, and you look at Christian Kirk and some of the wide receivers you guys have had and you, you got to bring them back because especially nowadays where wide receivers are becoming a premium position and they're set in the market value, you're going to have to spend money and it's going to hurt your cap value. But you're, if you really want Trevor Lawrence to be the Trevor Lawrence you want, you have to keep those wide receivers. You got the tight end, you have the running back, you got to keep the wide receivers. Cause I personally think when fully healthy, even though they don't get the recognition they deserve when you have the Miamis of the world and the Buffaloes of the world out there. And of course, wide receivers in Minnesota and, and offenses in Dallas. When fully healthy with Ingram and ATN and, and, and Ridley and Trevor Lawrence, that's a dynamic offense. If healthy and the right way, I don't think you need to tweak it much. You just got to make sure it stays healthy because you've seen it. You've seen it when it's good. So, they need to keep them. They need to bring Calvin Ridley back. And I, I believe you need to take care of Josh Allen. Uh, he's one of the premier defensive guys in the league. And then you look elsewhere to find out how you fill the holes elsewhere. A couple more for David Behrman of the Pro Football Network. PFN is where you find him. David's been in the industry for years. He's now the chief content officer at Pro Football Network. To the AFC South, David, the Jaguars were thought – to be the team, right? The team moving forward, it was going to be their division for the long haul. Obviously, C.J. Stroud and D'Amico Ryans had other plans. You throw in Indianapolis now getting Anthony Richardson back. And, and Tennessee with a brand-new coach and Brian Callahan. We'll see what happens there. The amazing thing about this division 
is Doug Peterson is now the elder statesman of the head coaches. He's coming into year three, yet Steichen and Ryans are going to be in year two. Callahan is first year in Nashville. Boy, what a turnover in the division very, very quickly. Yeah, it's quite amusing. Both South divisions in AFC and NFC have such turnover that, yeah, your elder statesman's Peterson there. And then out in the NFC, you have uh, you have Dennis Allen and uh, I'm trying to remember who the other one is out south that is, uh, that's been there. But you think guys who have been there for three years are all of a sudden your elder statesman. The division is I, – I, I think the AFC South is much better positioned than the NFC South. And those are the two talked-about divisions that are the weakest in football. You mentioned it. I mean, Houston had an unbelievable turnaround to be able to go from a team that literally was one play away from the number one pick to winning the division that just stunned everybody and then winning a playoff game. Jacksonville should have won the division and didn't. Indy was right there until the end. I still think it's going to be a long road for Tennessee, but, you know, they have a low draft pick, so or high draft pick, depending on how you look at it. They have one of the top draft picks where they can try to get a turnaround, but they're going to lose Derrick Henry, so their offense is gone. Ryan Tannehill is likely not coming back. So I think Tennessee is going to be at the bottom of that division next year, no matter how the draft works out. But then again, we thought that about Houston this year. Houston gets two of the top three draft picks. They both win Rookie of the Year on offense and defense. Uh, And next thing you know, they win the division. I don't think that was expected. I think it took a historic collapse by Jacksonville to do that. But I, what I think you're going to see is a battle between Jacksonville and Houston for years to come uh, with Indy Prime to jump in there should a Trevor Lawrence or a CJ Stroud get injured or something, and then Indy could jump right back in there. But that division is growing. It's getting better. Um, and, you know, you look at last year you had a new quarterback in Houston, a new quarterback in Indy, and you're probably going to get a new quarterback in Tennessee this year. So, all of a sudden, Trevor Lawrence is the veteran of the division, which is something you wouldn't have said a few years ago. Did you like the Brian Callahan hire? I'm I'm still surprised they got rid of Mike Vrabel in Nashville. What did you make of that? I was surprised on both ends. Uh, not so much that Vrabel wasn't coming back. I assumed that Vrabel would have been a candidate in New England. I didn't think Tennessee was going to flat out get rid of him, but I also didn't know what was going on behind the scenes with Vrabel basically asking to be released so he can go to New England. Um, I, the, the hire surprised me. Obviously, Callahan's a great mind coming from Cincinnati, uh, so it stays in the AFC. I'm not sure if that's the move I would have made with all the big names out there. And, you know, I'm not saying Belichick would have been the right move or Pete Carroll would have been the right move, but there are big enough games, names out there that I am surprised that Callahan was the guy. Uh, it could work out just like Indy did last year with Trikin, or it could be a two- and three-year mess where you have to go start all over again in a few years. Final moments, David Behrman of Pro Football Network. David, as we make the turn for home, eight new head coaches this offseason, this coaching cycle, five of them on the defensive side of the ball. That is a drastic change from what we've seen. Normally, it's the up-and-coming offensive mind. The only two teams that went that route this year were Tennessee and Carolina, Harbaugh is an offensive guy, but he's obviously 60 years old. The other five hires were all defensive minds. Surprise you at all, or is that a direct reflection of what D'Amico Ryans did in Houston last season? I just think it's a cyclical cycle that the NFL goes through. One year they do retreads of, of veteran coaches. The next year it's the hot offensive assistant for a couple of years. Mike McDaniels of the world. Uh, Staley's and Staley's of the world. And the next thing you know, it's a whole bunch of defensive guys like Staley, like 
uh, some of the other guys that are hired in success. So it just goes in cycles. At the end of the day, you need to marry the coach with the team, and you would hope that your organization is doing that. You need to help on offense. You go get Callahan. You need to help elsewhere. You with D'Amico Ryan's. Uh, I, I just think it's it's just more coincidental than anything. Um, but the, the Harbaugh one is the interesting one because he's the lone college football coach who has had success in the NFL. So we'll see what makes of that. He has all the talent in the world in Los Angeles. Um, but you're also in a division with an improving Las Vegas team. You're in three, two-time Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs and a Denver team that is improving under Sean Payton. So that division might eventually get to the point where we thought it was going to be two years ago as the best division in football because you have – now you have powerhouse coaches to go with powerhouse quarterbacks. Think about it. You know, you got Sean Payton, Jim Harbaugh, and Andy Reid all in the same division, and it's not like Antonio Pierce is anything to sneeze over. He's good, and he's, you've seen what he's done with the Raiders. So that is a good division to watch next year to see what happens. Yeah, there's a ton of talent on the field and in the coaching circle in the AFC West, no question about that. David, tell the good folks here in Jacksonville again about Pro Football Network and what they can anticipate when they head on over to the website. Absolutely. We just finished up our Super Bowl coverage. We still have more coming from sound that we got at Radio Row. If you go to profootballnetwork.com, we're preparing for free agency that's coming in 20-something days. we got the Combine coming up. We'll have four people at the Combine, two from the college side and two from the NFL side, giving you minute-by-minute uh, -minute coverage of, of, of all the intangibles there at the Combine. And then we jump right into free agency, which is, as you know, a, a holiday all by itself. So profootballnetwork.com. Follow us there at PFN365 on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And we're going to have podcasts three, four, five times a week leading up to the Combine and afterwards. Absolutely love it. Pro Football Network is one of my go-to websites, PFN365. And David Behrman is the chief content officer. David, really enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully we can do it again right around free agency. Thank you, my friend. Absolutely. Love to be on. Thank you. There you go, David Behrman of Pro Football Network. Always enjoy the conversation with him here on Hacker After Dark. Because, yeah, we get into it quick, right? Combine is in two weeks. Franchise tags can be handed out as early as next week. And, again, Calvin Ridley, Ezra Cleveland, Josh Allen, Jamal Agnew, all of these guys that are set to become free agents, we will have some clarity. We will have some choices on these guys and their futures here in Jacksonville in three and a half weeks, 25 nights from tonight, Monday, March 11th, is when that negotiation period in the National Football League begins, and you can officially sign on Wednesday, March the 13th. It is a Thursday night edition of Hacker After Dark. We're glad you're with us. 1010XL, 92.5 FM, coming up in about 45 minutes or so. We will talk draft. We will talk a lot of draft coming up. In the next hour, actually coming up towards the bottom of the 9 o'clock hour, we'll get away from the NFL just a little bit and do a little bracketology, college basketball style, with Jerry Palm of CBSSports.com. But it's all football for the next hour or so, and that leads in to Justin Mello of the Draft Network. He also does a terrific job covering the Tennessee Titans for SB Nation. Let's talk AFC South. Let's talk Jaguars. And let's talk 2024 draft class. Justin Mello, the Draft Network, next. Hacker After Dark, 1010XL and 
92.5 FM. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville, we are glad you are with us. The NFL offseason now officially underway. The Kansas City Chiefs are once again world champions. And the way the NFL calendar works, franchise tags can begin handing out next week, if you can believe that. So all eyes down here will be on Josh Allen. Of course, then we get to the Combine in Indianapolis, and we are 25 days away from NFL free agency. It will get here very, very quick. With all that, let's go to Justin Mello, the Draft Network. He also covers the Tennessee Titans for SB Nation, and he's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Justin, how you doing? Doing well, Ryan. Uh, I mean, you summed it up nicely with scouting combines just really a couple days away. It feels like we're less than a month out from free agency. So the NFL calendar, if there's one thing they do well, certainly it's uh, always giving you something to talk about. You know, the, the, the Super Bowl is just in our rearview mirror. The Senior Bowl is just in our rearview mirror. And yet here we are moving forward to uh, the combine and free agency. Justin, I want to get to the draft with you. I certainly want to spend some time on the Jaguars and the rest of the AFC South, but you do a terrific job along with the Draft Network and covering the Tennessee Titans there for SB Nation, a couple of different outlets there. And and Brian Callahan, right, the brand-new head coach for the Titans, it's got a lot of attention down here. The last time we saw the Titans, it was Mike Vrabel giving the Jaguars the beating 39 days ago to knock us out of the playoffs. Two days after that, Vrabel gets fired, and in comes Brian Callahan, who's never had, obviously, head coaching experience. We look at that here, at least I do, and it was somewhat surprising. What was the reaction in Nashville? Well, I think the initial reaction in Nashville was largely surprising. I think the reaction everywhere uh, initially was one of surprise. And as we get further away from it, you know, as it tends to happen, you start receiving more information about what, uh, you know, potentially led to Vrabel's dismissal. And there were a ton of great pieces written, uh, The Athletic, uh, you, you name it, right? Uh, a ton of great pieces written on, on what transpired that led to Vrabel being fired. And it, it seems to be an alleged uh, power struggle, really, between him and the front office. Uh, you know, he had felt he had put himself in a position, you know, potentially over these last six years to gain increased control over the franchise and certainly its roster happenings, as owner, whereas owner Amy Adams Strunk didn't feel um, that strongly about giving a head coach that type of control. It's not a model she's a fan of. She looks at the way the NFL is heading, and she sees how collaborative models are sort of the new trend. Mike Rabel's not very collaborative. He's an alpha male, if you will, in the room, and he didn't, tip, you know, he didn't really get along with general manager Rand Carthon either, right? There was reports that when Rand was hired, um, his opinion that he wasn't ready for that job, Mike Rabels was, and said, we should make him our number two. You know, the moment owner Amy Adams-Strunk disagreed and made him the number one, you can almost say the clock began ticking, right? The disagreement started right there, and uh, it's tough to make those disagreements work while you're trying to swim in one direction. Essentially, Rand Carthon, I thought it was uh, almost an underhanded shot at Mike Rabel when he hired Brian Callahan. He said uh, hunting together, sorry, going hunting at the same time is not the same as hunting together. And this organization is now hunting together. So uh, certainly uh, the, the disagreements between the front office ownership and Mike Rabel is what led to his dismissal. 
Justin Mello of the Draft Network. I don't blame Tennessee for doing what they did, but I can tell you, Justin, Vrabel killed the Jaguars in like six years. Vrabel's sure record was unreal. <laughs> so we're not losing any sleep over the fact that Mike Vrabel is no longer the head coach of the Tennessee Titans. What has the thought been up there, obviously early, about Brian Callahan? Well, I don't blame you one bit, and I'm, I'm of the opinion that Mike Vrabel's a very good head coach, and I, I believe he'll work again in this league as a head coach, and t- only time will tell if the Titans made the right decision or not. The early returns on Brian Callahan are promising. Look, uh, I've been around long enough to know we don't know how this is going to work out yet, right? Anytime you got a first-time head coach, he's also a first-time play caller. He's going to call the plays in Tennessee. He's never done that before. Um, we'll see how that all works out. But the early returns are one of excitement, and I can understand why the fan base is excited about this appointment. Number one, he is extremely different from Mike Vrabel in almost everything he does, not just from a philosophy, a philosophy, his offensive philosophy is extremely different. He believes in throwing the football and throwing it a lot. Right. As you know, Mike Rabel wanted to pound the run game, right, with Derrick Henry. So not only is that very different um, for the Titans, but he's also a very different person. I mean, he, uh, yesterday afternoon, on uh, Tuesday, or sorry, Wednesday that was, he introduced his coordinators to the media for the first time. So they got to meet offensive coordinator Nick Holtz and defensive coordinator Denard Wilson for the very first time. After that conference concluded, Brian Callahan walked into the media room and just chopped it up with the local reporters for several minutes. I cannot tell you how different that is from Mike Vrabel, who wouldn't spend one extra minute with those people than he had to. You know what I mean? Vrabel's an old-school throwback guy. He wanted to keep the football team as far away from the media as possible. He was relentless in his belief that holding as much information close to your chest as possible gives you a competitive advantage. I hate to say it, it's a cliche, but call it that old New England style of football, right? The way the organization was run. Brian Callahan is night and day different. I know people that know Callahan uh, from his time in Cincinnati that would uh, immediately that would approach him and say, hey, why do you run this play the way you run it? And he would give you a full breakdown on why they believe that works. You could ask Brian Callahan, what do you think about Tajay Spears' fit in an outside zone running scheme? And he will give you an actual honest, long-winded answer on what he thinks about that fit. He is completely different from Mike Rabel in everything that he does, the way that he does it, and the way that he believes offensive football should be played. He said yesterday, Uh, Yeah, we'll take what the defense gives you on occasion, but we want to be an offense that dictates, okay? We want you to have to change the way you play defense. We don't want to change the way we play offense. Again, not something that Mike Rabel did a very good job of here these last couple of years. Titans haven't even scored 30 points in close to three, in about three seasons. So uh, definitely a change of philosophy on hand here for the Tennessee Titans. Justin, final thought on Tennessee, because I want to move on to Jacksonville and the rest of the division. Uh, The Titans have about a billion dollars to spend in free agency, very similar to what Jacksonville did two years ago where they signed Christian Kirk and Evan Ingram and Zay Jones and and on down the line. I mean, we should expect the Titans to be very active in three weeks, correct? Absolutely. I think you look at what Jacksonville did that offseason. Why did they do what they did? It was all about surrounding Trevor Lawrence Um, with a supporting cast that he could be successful with, right? Well, the goal's about to be the same for Tennessee three weeks from now, and it's going to be about surrounding Will Levis with a supporting cast that he could be successful with. The offensive line has probably one 
returning starter, and that'll be sophomore first-round pick Peter Skaronsky. And they only have really one wide receiver they feel they can really count on in DeAndre Hopkins. So expect their strategy in free agency and the draft uh, to be offense-heavy. I expect they'll sign probably at least two starters on the offensive line. The, the new coaching staff has ties to a number of unrestricted free agents. That includes, of course, Jonah Williams from the Cincinnati Bengals, Andre James, the center from the Las Vegas Raiders, uh, Nick Harris, a center from the Cleveland Browns, Mike Onwenu, uh, a versatile guard slash tackle from the New England Patriots. There are members on this Titan staff, uh, this new staff that have coached those guys. All of them are unrestricted free agents. They'd be instant starters for the Titans and go down the line at receiver, right? I don't expect T. Higgins to become a free agent, but if the, uh, if a shocking development happens there, then they would certainly be in that mix. You know, Tyler Boyd is someone that will probably be leaving Cincinnati that Brian Callahan's familiar with. And we could go on and on down the line. There are a number of uh, offensive uh, sided uh, free agents that are about to be Tennessee Titans in a couple of weeks. Justin Mello, the Draft Network, also covers the Tennessee Titans for SB Nation. Justin, you saw the Titans collapse two years ago. They gave the Jaguars the AFC South. The exact same thing happened to the Jaguars this year, losing five out of six. Houston comes in and wins the division. From a guy like you that covers this division, how surprised were you at what happened here in Jacksonville over the last six weeks? You know, I'll be totally honest with you, and I'm not saying it because I cover the Titans. I was not that surprised. And you could go back to my offseason predictions article where I had actually said that Jacksonville struck me as a franchise that got a little too complacent last offseason. And what I mean by that, and I know, you know, they were uh, more up against the cap than they were the year before when they added all those guys. I just didn't see an offseason last year in Jacksonville that did enough to take a step forward. I, I sort of, of I'm, I'm of the belief that there was sort of this false sort of belief that, you know, they had done enough. You know, they took that huge step forward. Uh, by winning the division the year before. They were a shocking improvement, right, from what what the two- or three-win season they had the year before. The number one overall pick, they turned it around so quickly and won the division. Well, it's important to remember that things in this league move very fast, okay? Every offseason, teams are trying to improve, and you can't get complacent. And when I looked at the offseason they have, I just never felt like they had done enough to take that next step forward. And that's exactly what happened, right? They didn't take that step. They stayed the same, essentially, right, as a 9-10 win team. They were the same football team they were the year before. I mean, obviously, the uh, on-field results, offense, defense were very different. But the general, you know, they won roughly the same amount of games that they had won the year before. So they had generally stayed the same. And that's sort of what I expected to happen based on the uh, sort of how I viewed it, the uninspiring offseason they had. A couple of more for Justin Mello. Now, the work you do with the Draft Network, Jacksonville needs to draft better. Now, what they've done, Trayvon Walker, amidst the collapse at the end of the year, Justin, looked like he started finding himself a little bit. He ends up with 10 sacks. I thought Anton Harrison was terrific for a 27th overall pick. I think he was one of the best rookie offensive tackles in football in 2023. Uh, But guys like Devin Lloyd, Luke Fortner, Brenton Strange, Tank Bigsby, I mean, with Bigsby and Strange, I know it's only a year. Fortner and Lloyd have, have a couple of years, but they're just not getting the job done right now. Trent Balky, this is an important draft for him because he is not doing well in the draft. 
it is an important draft for him. And I think with that number 17 overall selection, I believe it is, they're a really interesting team because I think they can go in a couple of different directions. I look at that, you know, we spent a lot of time focusing on the offense and I get it. They took a step backwards. I don't think that Trevor Lawrence and that offense took the step forward that everyone expected them to take. But one thing that I don't think gets mentioned enough is that 26th ranked pass defense didn't do them any favors either, right? There's room for improvement there too. Really good hire at defensive coordinator in Ryan Nielsen, a home run hire. In my opinion, I expect him to be a fairly sizable upgrade over Mike Caldwell. He did a great job in Atlanta this past year. Coach Nielsen did, and he did a great job in new Orleans before that in the various roles that he found himself in. So when I look at that pick, I look at corner, you know, Tyson Campbell and Darius Williams, both entering contract years this year. I expect Campbell will eventually sign an extension, but I think a replacement, right, for the aging Williams is probably needed. I look at guys like Cooper DeGene. I look at Quinion Mitchell, who had a huge senior bowl. Those guys are, you know, projected first-round picks that I think will find themselves within that range that Jacksonville is picking in. If you flip to the other side of the ball offensively, it continues to be about supporting Trevor Lawrence. I think the interior of the offensive line hasn't quite been as good um, as it could be. Uh, Brandon Scherf, to my knowledge, is a potential cap casualty. Uh, Luke Fortner at center, you said he's a couple of years in. Well, I think it was the 100th overall selection. It might be time to look elsewhere. I don't think he's quite reached the level they thought he would. I look at a center from Oregon, Jackson Powers Johnson, who just had an outstanding senior bull, positioned himself to be a potential first-round pick, that he would be plug-and-play at center. Or if they still believe in Fortner, you look to upgrade the left guard spot, or again, if surf departs at right guard. I look at a guy like Washington Huskies uh, lineman Troy Fatanu, who's very versatile, can play both tackle and guard. I'm projecting him to play guard at the next level personally, uh, so that's an option there to improve the offensive line. And then on the outside looking in, uh, what's going to happen with Calvin Ridley? Right, I don't think he quite reached the level they thought he was going to this year. I think you know they thought they were getting a, a 1,500-yard receiver. He barely surpassed 1,000 yards. He had nine games, I believe it was, with 40 or under receiving yards. So he didn't quite make the impact they thought he was going to. If they let him walk in free agency, certainly you can look at a big bodied um, sort of, you know, X type dominant boundary receiver, a guy like Brian Thomas Jr. from LSU, who has been uh, in that, firmly in that first round conversation after having a breakout year for the Tigers this year. So there are a number of directions I think Jacksonville can go in with their first round pick, but I ultimately think it's going to be either an offensive lineman, a receiver, or a corner. Justin Mello of the Draft Network. Justin, as we begin to wrap up, I agree with you. I go back to Week 18 in Tennessee and Jacksonville, and the Titans' offensive line pushed the Jaguars around. The Titans' defensive line pushed the Jaguars around. It's not sexy. It's not glamorous. It's not going to sell a lot of season tickets, and we'll have to wait and see what happens in free agency. But as far as the draft goes, as of right now, I need some big uglies, man. I need some 310-pounders on the O-line and the D-line because that was embarrassing what happened to the Jaguars up in Nashville. Leave us with this. Um, the AFC South, 12 months ago going into that offseason, it was thought to be awful. Now all of a sudden you look, three teams were above 500. You got C.J. Stroud, the Offensive Rookie of the Year, Trevor Lawrence, a former number one overall pick, everybody's intrigued with Anthony Richardson coming back and everybody's intrigued with Will Levis in Tennessee. 
this division turned around very quickly. And amazingly enough, Doug Peterson now, the elder statesman of the head coaches in this division, only entering year three, yet he's the longest tenured coach. Life comes at you fast in the NFL, right? You never know what's going to happen. The AFC South, I agree with you, once viewed as one of the least interesting divisions in all the football, to be honest, is potentially now the most exciting division in football heading into 2024 here. Uh, I, I think, you know, the Houston Texans are, are, are well set up right now. It's hard to go against what they did this past year. I think C.J. Stroud is a bona fide superstar with that said, they're going to have to learn from what the Jaguars experienced this year, right? You, there's no room for complacency. The other three teams are fierce contenders. And now the Texans are operating from a different place, right? They've got the bullseye on their back now. They're no longer the underdog that's catching everyone by surprise. I think the Jags will bounce back. I think they're well-positioned. Doug Peterson's a good head coach. I still think Trevor Lawrence is a franchise quarterback. Battled through some injuries this year. I don't think he was at his best. Uh, and I think they'll, of course, correct some of last offseason's mistakes and improve the roster this year. But certainly you can't sleep on the Indianapolis Colts and the Tennessee Titans. What happens to them and with them comes down to the two names you said, right? How do Anthony Richardson and Will Levis develop as franchise quarterbacks this year? Both of them now have offensive-minded head coaches, right, and, and Shane Steichen uh, with the Colts and Brian Callahan with the Titans. Both of their offseasons – are all going to center around supporting those franchise quarterbacks and developing them into what they believe they can be. So it's going to be a very exciting offseason in the AFC South, and it might even be it might be even more unpredictable when the season gets here in September because this division right now is up for the taking. I understand thinking the Texans and Jags are still the two best position teams, but certainly uh, we'll see what happens with Richardson and Levis and how they can position the Titans and Colts. Justin, we got thirty seconds. Derrick Henry, one month from today, is he still a Tennessee Titan? No. I'm going to say uh, teams like the Baltimore Ravens, Dallas Cowboys, Buffalo Bills, probably going to be very enticing for him. He wants to win a Super Bowl, play for an instant contender. All three of those teams have needs at running back. Uh, be, the Ravens tried to trade for him during the season, so that's one to watch. Uh, that'll be interesting. Of course, we love Derek. Uli uh, High School, we had him in studio a bunch during his high school days here in Northeast Florida. Justin, tell the good folks here in Jacksonville about the Draft Network and what they can expect when they head on over to the website. Follow me on Twitter at Justin M underscore NFL. I'm currently conducting the draft networking interview series. I am interviewing one prospect in the 2024 NFL draft every single day from now to the NFL draft. I started back in January. We are already at 65, 75 of them, roughly. A ton of first-round picks are already, uh, interviews with a ton of projected first-round picks are already there. So many more are coming. Make sure you head over to draftnetwork.com. Weekly mock drafts, the best scouting reports you'll find on any uh, draft-based website, and interviews every single day with this draft class. Absolutely terrific. Justin Mello of the Draft Network. He also does a great job covering the Tennessee Titans there for SB Nation. Justin, this is our first conversation. It won't be the last, man. Really enjoyed it. Let's do it again after free agency. We'll see where the Jaguars and the Titans both stand. You know where to find me, Ryan. Pleasure was all mine. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville, we are glad you are with us. Well, everybody is 0-0 zero and zero again. The offseason has officially started, although here in Jacksonville, we're well over a month into our offseason. The Kansas City Chiefs 
are once again world champions, and now all eyes begin turning to the scouting combine. After that, free agency, and of course, after that will be the NFL draft. With all that being said, Cody Carpentier of Roster Watch, he does a great job covering the NFL draft, and he's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Cody, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic, brother. I appreciate you having me on, man. Hey, Cody, as always, man, thank you for the time. For those unfamiliar, I certainly know about it, but for those that are listening tonight that maybe haven't heard about Roster Watch, tell us about it. Tell us what we can expect when we head over to the website. I mean, rosterwatch.com is a place where you can get it all. We do have a show on SiriusXM uh, on, the, on the weekends during the in-season, but mainly everything is over rosterwatch.com. You know, we're known for our ultimate – draft cheat sheets which is basically basically focused on fantasy football dynasty fantasy football and things of that nature but what i do over there is i cover the nfl draft i'm nfl draft analyst so i got my top 25 wide receiver rankings for the nfl draft coming out this week and mock drafts and things of that nature yeah it's that time of year now that the super bowl is in the rearview mirror quickly cody kansas city i mean i mean what do you say mahomes gets his third ring he and andy Reid, just an unbelievable combo travis kelsey probably the best tight end that's ever lived i mean what do you make of the chiefs winning it all once again if the, the thing is is if they want it this year it's going to be the, the thought is just how 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 do they not win it next year right this was the team that was expected to you know be one and done in the playoffs you know potentially lose to the bills lose to the ravens lose to all of these teams they were the underdog the whole way through this was the team that was the most incomplete on the offensive side of the ball that, that they've had over the last five years or six years that they've been in the AFC championship and they did it with McCole Hardman having three receptions, Justin Watson having three receptions. Like it, it just tells you what Andy Reed, what Patrick Mahomes mean to this team, to this franchise. And of course, Travis Kelsey coming alive there in that second half. But I think the name of the game really comes down to defense. This defense was able to hold strong throughout the entire game, despite, you know, field goal, field goal, field goal. This defense was able to continue to do what they've done all year, which is keep Kansas City within striking distance. And if you can keep Patrick Mahomes within striking distance, I mean, it feels like we're in for another decade of this type of a situation with a quarterback at this level of talent. The 31 other NFL teams now have six months to figure out how to stop these guys. The good news for Jacksonville, because they did not win the division, they do not play. Kansas City in the regular season next year. If they see the Chiefs, it'll be in the playoffs, so Houston can have fun with that when they travel out to Arrowhead <laughs> next year. Cody Carpentier of Roster Watch. All right, Cody, I want to talk about the 24 draft class, certainly, but let's spend some time on the Jags. First and foremost, it's been well over a month since the collapse, as we're calling it. The six teams since the year 2000 to start 8-3 and three and miss the playoffs. What did you make of Really, what happened here in Jacksonville over the last six weeks of the season? It did kind of feel like an up and down type of a, a situation. Of course, I'm kind of on the outside looking in, where I kind of cover all of the NFL, not just a singular team. So my kind of thoughts coming in, I think we're just like everybody else is coming in. This Jacksonville team is lined up to win, you know, 12, 11, 12 games this year. And after that first game against Indianapolis, the hope kind of felt like it went out of the building, and everyone got soured. And then they go on that hot streak in the middle of the year, going into that bye. And that's really when everyone bought back in. I was shocked to see how things kind of unraveled down the stretch. But I think that's part of growing pains. It did feel like 2022 was supposed to be the, the growing pains year. 
Um, but sometimes things come in due time. They don't just get built overnight like Rome, right? Uh, Rome wasn't built in the day. The Jacksonville Jaguars aren't just going to turn into a Super Bowl contending champion overnight. It takes, uh, you know, a team to build. Kansas City didn't turn into this overnight, right? It took, of course, that quarterback, but this team was being built and built and built. And the only reason they 2023, 2024, Kansas City Chiefs won is because they've been building this defense slowly but surely. And it feels like Jacksonville is kind of on the same path as far as they're spending the capital on the defense, they're spending the dollars on the offense, and it should continue to evolve. I was, you know, to answer your question, though, shocked kind of how the season did unravel towards the end of the year, especially after the first 12 weeks. Losing five out of six was awful. But amidst that collapse, one of the things that was, to me, a little bit overlooked, at least locally, was Trayvon Walker. Trayvon Walker looked like Cody. He started figuring some things out. At the end of the year, he finished with 10 sacks, which was basically triple what he had his rookie year. What do you make of Trayvon Walker, and what are your thoughts on him moving forward? I think that's the duo that you need, though. The, the Having Josh Allen on one side, having Trayvon Walker coming off as well. It's You need to have – that's it's kind of what we're learning right now in the NFL is you need to have these pass rushers that can come from both sides. You saw San Francisco get there with Chase Young and with Nick Bosa. The Ravens, of course, have had a, a vaunted defensive line. And Trayvon Walker is a guy that, again, going into that draft, he was the number one overall pick, but he was not expected to be. It was Kayvon Thibodeau. It was Aiden Hutchinson. And we've seen the bright lights that Aiden Hutchinson has kind of lived up to and, and things of that nature. But I think one of the big takeaways I did have this year and one thing that changed – um, was the, the pressures that these guys were able to have. The first four games of the season, Josh Allen had 15 pressures, Trayvon Walker had eight. Those next four, when they turned it around, it was, again, kind of around these two guys. 15 pressures the first four games, Josh Allen had 24 pressures the next four, Trayvon Walker eight, up to 17 the following four. It, it, it kind of feels like they're the the glue to the defense. I know there's a couple of other players on here that are, are tier one players, but Trayvon Walker took a bigger step in year two, which is kind of the expectation. He wasn't supposed to be a year one superstar. You know, he was the the, the physical freak coming out. He didn't have, you know, a, a 15 sack season in college. There was no expectation he was going to do that year one in the NFL. So seeing him grow in year two definitely um, should give the, the Jacksonville Jaguar fan base a, a positive thought going forward because hitting 11 sacks in year two with a projection with him being a projection, I should say, into the NFL is exactly what Jacksonville wanted. Cody Carpentier of Roster Watch here with us on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Cody, Trayvon Walker started playing well in year two, certainly. The guy that he was drafted alongside in the first round in 2022, Devin Lloyd, I still think there was some growing pains. To me, 2024 is a huge year for Devin Lloyd. It's going to be year three. It's time to show why he was selected in the first round. And Cody, so far, at least in my opinion, he has not shown that. I would agree a thousand percent. He played less snaps this year and he didn't, he didn't quite live up to the hype. When he was coming out, you know, I was looking at him to be a top 12, top 13 pick. With that build, he was looking as, you know, potentially being, you know, and it feels like kind of unfortunately laughable to think about right now, but thinking about being him in the same conversation of the Fred Warners, the Micah Parsons, as far as a projection of what he could be, the frame was there, the playability at Utah was there, and it really hasn't lived up to the hype. And he's a player next to Foye Aluakon that you need to be – he needs to be up there. He, he should have taken that year two leap as Trayvon Walker did, and that's unfortunate for this defense that he didn't. It'll be a massive, massive uh, beneficial uh, piece to this defense if he does do it in year three. 
to the 2023 draft, Cody. And look, Anton Harrison, truthfully, I didn't know much about him at pick 27. At pick 27, it's kind of a crapshoot, right? You don't really know what you're going to get. Everybody from Oklahoma said all the right things. But in watching him play and in talking to him in the locker room, boy, I think the Jaguars hit a home run. I'm not sure how many rookie tackles, if any at all, played better than Anton Harrison in 2023. To me, I thought his rookie season was pretty good. I think that was the big conversation coming in. Is There's a guy in this 2024 class as well from Oklahoma, funny enough. His name is Tyler Dighton. The same conversation was had a year ago around Anton Harrison. He wasn't a well-known commodity coming into last year's draft cycle. And as we got closer to the draft, he was a name that you saw bump up into that top 15, bump up into that top 10, next to the names of the Broderick Joneses of the world that went 14th overall to the Steelers. It was like, ooh, this guy, this guy's got some, like I talked about with Trayvon Walker, some projection to be a, a very, very good tackle in the league. And you're right, after year one, next to Paris Johnson from, from Arizona, who was the first tackle off the board and was a, you know, a shoe-in of any to be a guarantee, Anton Harrison was the next best tackle in this class, and it was – of course, a great piece for the Jacksonville Jaguars offense on the opposite uh, of, of Cam Robinson, who's had his ebbs and flows the last few years. And, of course, that interior that has just been uh, not living up to expectation. Cody Carpentier of Roster Watch. Cody, when you studied Anton Harrison, uh, he was obviously a left tackle at Oklahoma, got moved to the right side last year. There was at least a thought, and again, we'll see what happens over the next month, they could save a ton of money if they cut Cam Robinson. I don't know if they should or not. I thought Cam was probably their best O-lineman, but they could potentially save a ton of money, and there was a thought about moving Anton to left. What would your thoughts be on that? I, I mean, it, it's all dependent on the player. Uh, I think I talked about this the other day on another show, but it, it all really depends on the player. The interior, moving a guy from right guard to left guard or center to left guard, that's much easier than moving a guy from right tackle to left tackle, left tackle to right tackle. It's all player dependent. But also I think when, uh, another thing that has to be brought into this conversation is if you do let Cam Robinson walk, if maybe Anton feels best playing right, this class right now in 2024 is loaded uh, at the tackle position. And, you know, drafting a left tackle is also an opportunity out there that you could do. And, again, there's supposed to be projected right now about eight tackles drafted in round one of the NFL draft. And there's a couple guys later on in round two and three that I think are formidable that could be slotted into a right tackle position if they did decide to move Anton to left. A couple of more for Cody Carpentier of Roster Watch. Cody, finally from the Jaguars draft class a year ago, it's a good thing Anton Harrison performed well because guys in the second, third, and fourth round did not. Ventro Miller got hurt, so his rookie year was a wash. Uh, Tank Bigsby in round three, I think, fumbled more than he got first down carries. <laughs> Britton Strange in round two, I honestly think committed more holding penalties than he had catches. Uh, clearly, when you draft guys in round two and round three, you would like them to contribute. Bigsby and Strange did very little of that last year. I, I feel good about Tank Bigsby. I know the, the output wasn't quite there, and it was interesting to see Dearness Johnson get the routes and the run after Earl ahead of Tank Bigsby. Bigsby was a, a prolific runner at Auburn, never cresting a thousand, but always being in that 800, 900 yard range over his three seasons at Auburn. I still think there's plenty of ability there with Tank to grow into that number two spot. And I would project him to do that in year two. Strange on the other hand at 6'4", 247 is, is a pretty solid athlete coming out of Penn State. And this is one thing that we tend to see from these tight ends is it, it takes them a while. We don't always get the guys that come in and 
even Kyle Pitts has had his struggles the last couple of years, but he had a thousand yards as a rookie or Sam LaPorta last year at a thousand yards as a rookie. That doesn't happen. And of course, having Evan Ingram there is going to suppress the abilities of Strange to get more reps and more routes and more opportunities. But Strange was a guy that was, again, we're talking about a projection. Anton Harrison was a projection. Trayvon Walker, a projection. Brenton Strange was a guy that that's exactly what you want in this type of an offense, though, a guy that projects and a guy that can sit behind Evan Ingram for two years and become something. So I'm not, I'm not letting the, the ship sail on either of these guys. And I still believe in Tank Bigsby the most. I don't know why Antonio Johnson was a fifth round pick. But the Jaguars found something there. I think he's going to be their starting safety if they cut Rayshon Jenkins. Were you surprised Johnson last year fell as far as he did? Yeah, he was a bigger guy out of, uh, I believe it was Texas A&M. And, you know, the opportunities to be there for Antonio Johnson, the athleticism wasn't quite on par with the expectation was. He was supposed to come in at about 6'3", 205 pounds. And people were looking at the 4'4 area and he ran the 4'5s, which is what it is at the, at the safety position. Um, I think he's going to be fine. Didn't have a, a great three cone. So some of that stuff kind of suppressed him down to the fifth round. But there was definitely conversations from, you know, from a literal first team All-SEC player in 2022 to being a late second round pick. So I did think it was a good value there. And if you believe he's going to be in the starting lineup in 2024, that's a that's a, be a pretty good value having him as a fifth round pick. A couple of more for Cody Carpentier of Roster Watch. All right, Cody, as we begin to wrap up, let's look at this year's class. You mentioned the O-lineman. That's where I'm at. Now, this conversation could change in free agency depending on what the Jaguars do. But as it stands right now, I need some big uglies, man, either on the interior D-line or the interior O-line. I need some 315, 320-pounders coming to Duval County. What does it look like in round one and round two for focusing on the lines of scrimmage? Well, I think number one, what I talked to Rick about the other day was Jackson Powers Johnson mainly. Uh, Powers Johnson has a little bit of a question right now with some potential red flags coming out from injuries at the NFL combine, but he is the best as it gets at the center position and the interior. He can play a little bit of guard, but Jackson Powers Johnson is that interior offensive lineman that you're looking for in round one. If you are looking at round two, a guy that probably is not going to play center, but can play guard with the best of the best to be Cooper Beebe, a guy out of Kansas state. He is a menace in the running game. Can He suffices in the passing game as well. Another guy out of, Connecticut that had a really good week down there at the Senior Bowl just a few weeks ago was Christian Haynes. He can play a little bit of center as well. But I think, namely, if you're looking, you know, round one, Jackson Powers Johnson is the name to know. Another name, Graham Barton. Graham Barton is an interchangeable center and guard from Duke. And so those are the four names I would keep in mind. Round one would be Jackson Powers Johnson and Graham Barton. Round two would be Cooper Beebe and Christian Haynes. I've been doing this long enough to know that when guys like you and colleagues to cover the draft, when I keep hearing the same name, that's somebody I'm looking at. And you're like the third guy that's brought up Graham Barton. So I think yep. I'm going to be on the Graham Barton bandwagon, Cody. I've heard it too many times <laughs> now where I'm at the point where I want Graham Barton out of Duke to come to Jacksonville. I, I wouldn't be against it. It's a, it's a, he's a very good offensive lineman. He's getting a little overshadowed by Jackson Powers Johnson because Powers Johnson played at a bigger school in Oregon and stuff like that. But, I mean, you want a nitty-gritty guy that can play all over the offensive line. It's it's Graham Barton, 1,000%. I got a question for you, though. Do you think offensive line is the number one need? Because I kind of have a, a little bit of a feel that the defensive line on the interior, why not add a big, ugly on um, defensive side like a like a Byron Murphy or a Tavondre Sweat out of Texas? Yeah, I think a lot depends on what they do in free agency. I'll tell you this. I like Luke Fortner. I like everything about Luke Fortner. I like interviewing him. He's a good guy. I want him here on the roster. I'm not sure if he needs to be the starting center anymore. 
for the Jaguars. Yeah. So to me, interior O-line, I think they're looking for starters there. I'm not sure if they're looking for starters on the interior D-line. They need to add some pieces, and again, depending on guys that they cut. But that's what I'm saying, man. It doesn't matter to me really what side of the ball necessarily. I just need guys on the line to scrimmage because right now the M.O. on the Jaguars is they're not physical on either side. Yeah. Yep. And it's really unfortunate where it stands right now. All right, Cody, leave us with this. I want to talk about roster watch one more time before we get there. Uh, I heard a crazy stat. 54 underclassmen declared for the draft this year. Compare that to over 140 underclassmen that declared for the draft after 2019. That's NIL, that's transfer portal, we know all of that, but obviously the depth of this draft class clearly is not what it was, say, four or five years ago, correct? Not, not at all. I mean, it's the thing is, it's at different positions, though. So wide receiver is still deep. Tackle is still deep. But it's the overall depth at the nuanced positions like the safeties, um, somewhat the cornerback position. There's, there's top-end talent at cornerback, but it kind of falls off pretty quickly. Uh, quarterback, of course, of course, you have the top guy names that everyone talks about. Running back, though, running back is a salvaged position right now that um, there's no true number one. There might be the fewest running backs drafted in seven rounds that we see in the last two, uh, you know, two decades. Um, so it's really taking about see, these weird positions like safety, running back, and things that people don't think about. But there's a couple, there's a, there's a couple groups like wide receiver, like I said, and tackle that are still, you know, holding their own. We got less than 60 seconds. Tell the good folks here in Jacksonville, Cody, again, about Roster Watch and what they can expect when they head on over to the website. Everything, you know, from fantasy football to dynasty leagues to NFL draft. That's that's our forte at rosterwatch.com. My top 25 wide receiver rankings are up right now over there. My mock drafts are up over there. And my, my, my top 100 big board will be live next week as it grows to top 500 by the time the NFL draft comes around. We got coverage on YouTube. We got coverage on rosterwatch.com on podcast feeds anywhere you can find us it's just all nfl draft and then that as soon as the nfl draft is over we roll right into training camps and we're on the road boots on the ground going to training camps we're here 365 days a year at rosterwatch.com we absolutely love it cody carpentier of roster watch cody i know you're busy thank you as always let's hopefully do it again after the combine and we'll see where things stand at that point appreciate you my friend appreciate you ryan thank you again Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville, we are glad you are with us. We have reached the middle portion of February. Believe it or not, we are roughly one month away from Selection Sunday. And now that word that we all throw around, bracketology, begins to take over our vocabulary. And one of the main guys when it comes to bracketology is Jerry Palm, CBSSports.com. He's been doing it for years, and Jerry's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Jerry, how you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Hey, Jerry, we're good. I know you're very busy this time of year. You're putting out brackets left and right over there on CBSSports.com. Does it get any easier as you do this year after year or in the middle of February, you just kind of throwing darts at a dartboard at this point? Well, it's not quite as much dart throwing when you get to this time of year, but sure, January brackets, there's a little bit of that. Uh, you haven't even really gotten, you know, well situated in a conference play yet. At least now we're past the halfway point of conference play for most. And so you've got a pretty good idea what these teams are. Obviously, a lot of movement is going to happen in the last month here, uh, but 
um, you're starting to, to see, you're starting to get a better feel for what these teams really are. You know, it's interesting this time of year, and this is new terminology in, I guess, the last five years, quad one wins, right, compared to yeah. quad two and quad three. Right. I think there's even a quad four. Jerry, for us that are not as educated on that, what exactly does that mean? So they use – this was introduced in 2018, the last year of the RPI, and then the, the net started in 2019. And and what they did – I mean, there were always quadrants before, but they never used them. But they basically put your opponents into four buckets on their team sheets and by quality of the opponent. And what changed – the reason the, the term quadrant came along is that it used to just be like top 50, top 100, top 200 – and that was it. You didn't really need to describe it. Now there's a home and road neutral aspect to it. So the rankings in each bucket are different uh, for home road neutral. Um, but it's still the same thing. Quad one is considered your toughest games. Quad two, the next group, quad three. And then quad four, which is the largest um, in terms of the rankings, is um, is considered your least difficult opponents. So the committee looks at it gives them an idea of you know, the kinds of teams that you played, uh, it, you know, and obviously you see the results that matters. So if you've played a lot of quad one games, it makes sense that you've probably played a really strong schedule. Um, so, and the, most of the teams in the tournament are going to come from quad one games, those kinds of games, but there'll be quad two teams, even in from the at large pool um, quad two teams uh, or teams that are mostly in quad two. Uh, will still make the tournament as at-large team. So it's um, it just gives the committee a way to organize a team's schedule and results in a way that that, that is, gives them good information about those games. Jerry Palm of CBSSports.com. Jerry, we'll get to Florida in a little bit, but I want to use them as an example right here. For the longest time, we saw the Gators were over in quad one. That has since changed with wins over Kentucky and Auburn. But they also said that there was no bad losses, that they were undefeated against quads two, three, and four. What weighs more, a good quad one win or, say, a terrible loss to a quad four team? It really depends on the rest of the profile, you know, what stands out about it. Um, you know, like Northwestern has got a pretty good resume and a home loss to Chicago State. And the the one of the weaknesses of, Notre, of Northwestern's resume is that they're kind of a home court hero. They're really good on their home floor, not so great away from home, and uh, still really looking for their first win away from home against a, a team that might be a threat to make the tournament. Uh, but when you're a home court hero and you lose at home to Chicago State, which is a quad four loss, it looks even worse. Uh, so maybe you're not as much of a home court hero as we thought, um, and you're not winning on the road. So um, so it's, it's things like that. Uh, so that game kind of stands out more than maybe a, not some random quad four loss for a team that's losing to teams up and down the bracket uh, or the, um, the, 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 the strength of, of, you know, you've got losses in each of the quadrants. Like Florida Atlantic has got a loss in each quadrant, um, which is kind of weird. Uh, but it, you know, it tells you that maybe they're not always there. <laughs> they don't always show up to play. Uh, anyway, so it's, it, it, I, th there is no good answer to your question whether a good win meets you know a quad one win meets more than a quad four loss it's, it's just one piece of a, of a bigger picture and they're not going to be looking just at one game and overvaluing one game 
One of your latest articles on CBSSports.com, Jerry, I thought you did a terrific job in taking us inside the mind of the committee. Uh, and you talk about how you've said this for years. If you ask a committee member, what do you look for in that room come Selection Sunday, it comes down to four questions. Who did you play? Where did you play them? Who did you beat? And who beat you? That sounds very simple, but at the it end is. of the day, that's what it's all about, right? It's very yep. simple. It's a very results-oriented process. So, and what you don't hear there is how much did you beat them by? That's not one of the questions. That That's not really important to them. Yet, you've got metrics, including the net, by the way, the NCAA's metric, that are heavily influenced by margin of victory. So, But the committee's not using the net to pick the teams they're using the net only to put, you know, teams in the team sheets in the correct quadrant. That's all. It, that's the only purpose it serves. So they're not sitting around and saying, well, this team's got a higher net or it's got a higher Ken Palm ranking. Therefore, we should take them and not the other. It's the, the metrics don't have that much influence. Um, and especially the ones that are not results oriented, you know, like those two, um, when it's a basically results oriented process. So, um you know, the metrics are on the team sheets. It means something to somebody. But if all you have is metrics, you don't really have anything. A couple of more for Jerry Palm, CBSSports.com. Before we dive into some of the teams, including Florida, you mentioned Ken Palm. That's another saying that we hear this time of year. Jerry, what is that? It's, it's a metric. Uh, it's a, you know, a way of ranking teams. Now, Ken is specifically trying to predict point spreads. So, Obviously, it's going to be heavily influenced by point spreads because that's what you want to predict. So um, it's another one that the net actually correlates very closely to, to Ken Palm, um, those rankings. So, you know, if you see teams like uh, Gonzaga, for example, I think is top 25 in the net and Ken Palm and the, you know, but their resumes don't stack up. Gonzaga isn't in my bracket they're close but they're not in michigan state's in the middle of the bracket after beating illinois but if you look at it uh, find a, a page somewhere that's got average margin of victory for college basketball teams those two teams are going to be higher on the list because that those metrics are measuring are largely you know based on margin of victory so um that's so Ken's rankings are similar in that regard. The net's not trying to predict scoring margins and, and Ken is. Um, and the net's got a, a results oriented component to it, but it's primarily margin of victory. Florida was on the outside looking in for a large portion of this year. Then all of a sudden they go to Rupp Arena, they beat Kentucky, they lose to AM, but then they turn right back around and knock off Auburn. So now we talk about those quad one wins, two quad yep. one wins for Todd Golden in Florida. And I know in your rankings, Jerry, in your bracketology, Florida now comfortably in as an eight seed. Yeah. Um, that, that speaks not just about Florida, but the the teams competing with them for spots in the bracket uh, are more highly flawed than, than Florida is. And, I mean, you mentioned earlier, Florida doesn't have a bad loss. All seven of their losses are against quad one teams. And, most of them, well, I think all of them are currently in my bracket. Virginia is relatively new to the bracket, but, um, you know, these are all, they've, they've lost to good teams. Now, it's been home and it's been away, but it's, you know, they don't have the, the, the eyesore loss sticking out there that, that really drags you down. And that level of consistency 
is something that's actually appealing to the committee. They know what they're going to get from Florida. They're going to show up to play. It's going to take a good team to beat them. You know, that's that kind of a thing. By the way, one of their quad two wins, uh, Mississippi State, is also in the bracket as an at-large team. So uh, that's an example of a team. It's a quad two game because they played them at home. But that's why, you know, sometimes quad two teams end up in the bracket as well. 16 and 7, 6 and 4 in the SEC. Is there a magic number? I mean, people around here say 20. If Florida gets to 20, they're almost a shoe in to get in. Would you agree with that? Uh, I don't ever make predictions like that because it depends on how you get to 20. Um, you know, if you just beat LSU and Vanderbilt and Mizzou and you take, what, four more losses to tournament teams, you're probably in a little trouble. You know, you haven't really helped yourself. You're just. You're still going to have two, maybe three wins over tournament teams, but now you've got four more losses. That gets to be pretty ugly. So it really does matter, you know, who you beat uh, to get to whatever magic number you think it is. But the other thing you're kind of ignoring here is the conference tournament. That's another loss. Uh, if you don't win it, if you're not the automatic qualifier, that's another loss. And who did you play in the tournament before you lost? And, and that, kind of thing matters. The conference tournament matters. Uh, it's They don't overvalue it, but they're neutral site games. Uh, so that's uh, something potentially helpful, but also, you know, you can get quality wins or bad losses there too. And if you're right on the cut line, that can, that can be meaningful to you. Jerry Palm, CBSSports.com. Jerry, the rest of the Southeastern Conference. I'm not sure if it's the best conference in college basketball, but I think it's in the conversation. It's a good yeah. year in the SEC I mean, what are we thinking? Seven, maybe eight teams that get in? Well, my current bracket has nine. Wow. Um, it might not be a sustainable number. I mean, there's a month ago, and, and teams are playing each other, right? So you would think at some point, well, you know, these guys are beating each other up a little bit. Maybe one falls off. Um, somebody finishes poorly, something like that. Uh, but I, I would say nine is a maximum, uh, it, but probably in the seven to nine range. Um, and, and there's going to be there are definitely teams uh, we know uh, that are good enough to compete for a national championship in the SEC this year, Tennessee, most notably. Um, so, you know, we'll find out. But uh, I, I would say the seven to nine range in terms of uh, teams actually getting in. As it stands right now, like you said, a month out, who are your four number one seeds? Uh, Purdue, Connecticut, Houston uh, and Arizona. Uh, the fourth one has been a revolving door the last couple of weeks. I don't think I've had two brackets in a row for the same team in the number four spot. Uh, but it's uh, uh, right now Arizona was Tennessee before Carolina has been in, in and out of that spot. So, yeah, it's um, but Purdue, Connecticut, Houston are really solid. Purdue is a very solid number one. I mean, they're one, two, three. Are, are really, you know, I, I don't say set in stone, but for right now, there's a clear delineation, Purdue, UConn, Houston, and then uh, there's a gap to the rest of college basketball. Final moments, Jerry Palm, CBSSports.com. Jerry, as we begin to wrap up, is this going to be a wide-open tournament? I mean, is there a handful of teams that you think could win it, or is this thing going to be open to a couple dozen maybe? Well, I, I always – I don't know about a couple dozen, but I always feel like – I mean, last year was an aberration. You know, it was just it was a weird tournament from the beginning to the end. Um, but UConn won, and that they were a really good team. They had they were fabulous for the first two months or so, and then they they had a rough schedule to start a Big East play, and then they got things going again. And 
we shouldn't be surprised that even though they were four seed that they were good enough to win. But for the most part, we've got eight to ten teams that are good enough to string six in a row together against this group. But you know, all it takes is somebody not out, not in that group to get hot, and they can be right there too. You've been doing bracketology for college basketball for years. Are you going to be the bracketologist when it comes to college football this upcoming season? I, I have been. I've been doing that as well. I've been doing football too. Well, um, it, now well, it was only a fourteen bracket. Yeah, know, about to say a time. lot easier with now, four. Now, now it's going to be twelve. I actually don't know that it's going to be that much harder. Really, uh, four to twelve. Uh, four might have been harder because you're leaving out really good teams there. When you get down to 12, uh, I, I think that there's going to be, I think it'll be an easier time trying to figure out who at least 11, you know, the top 11 are, then you're going to have a, an automatic qualifier from the outside the major conferences that, you know, could get up in that level sometime, but most often than not, will be outside that top 11. Jerry, tell the good folks here in Jacksonville, man, cbssports.com, what you have coming out on the website in the coming days and weeks. Yeah, well, the the next um, thing that's noteworthy is the NCAA is going to have their bracket reveal show on Saturday on CBS. Uh, I think it's at uh, noon. And um, where the NCAA gives us their top 16 at the time uh, as of Saturday morning. So, um, that's always interesting to get a look uh, at um, what's going on in the minds of the committee, a snapshot in February, a month out from Selection Sunday. I'll be part of that show. Um, and then I have brackets Mondays and Fridays until we get closer to the end when they become daily. He's one of the best in the business, Jerry Palm, CBSSports.com. Jerry, know you're busy. Thank you for the time. We'll do it again soon. All right, thanks. And thank you to Jerry Palm, Bracketology, CBSSports.com, for joining us tonight here on Hacker After Dark. The Gators, with their victory over LSU earlier this week, now sit at 17-7 and on the year. They are 7-4 and in the Southeastern Conference. They are comfortably in the field of 68 right now. In fact, Jerry, in his most recent Bracketology, had Florida as an 8 seed, so they are in by a large Large margin. Still don't want to collapse, obviously. Seven games remaining in the regular season, but barring an absolute collapse, uh, it appears Florida will go dancing for the first time in a couple of years. They got a big one on Saturday. I believe they head to Athens where they take on former head coach Mike White and the Georgia Bulldogs. Well, that'll just about do it for what has been a very busy Thursday night edition of Hacker After Dark. We certainly appreciate you guys for hanging out with us here on 1010XL and on 92.5 FM. We have a ton of people to thank. Again, Jerry Palm, CBSSports.com for joining us. Thank you to Cody Carpentier. Roster Watch does a terrific job covering the NFL draft. Always enjoy talking ball with Cody here on Hacker After Dark. David Behrman of Pro Football Network. PFN. He was with ESPN forever. He's now taken over as the chief content officer at Pro Football Network. Always enjoy talking with David. A little Jaguars, a little AFC South, and the rest of the National Football League heading into what should be a very interesting offseason. And back in hour number one, Justin Mello of the Draft Network. He also covers the Tennessee Titans for SB Nation. We talked AFC South. We talked NFL Draft and more with Justin Mello of the Draft Network. Now, we are gone tomorrow night and Monday. 
heading to the most magical place on earth with the family. So I will be out tomorrow night and Monday. We will be back on Tuesday night, and we are in for Baloo next week. So I will join you again Tuesday night at 8 o'clock for the next edition of Hacker After Dark. Dylan Denmark was your producer tonight. Dylan, great job as always. I'm the hacker, Ryan Green. And again, Jacksonville, thank you for spending part of your Thursday evening with us right here on Hacker After Dark on 1010XL and on 92.5 FM. So for all of us on HAD, have an absolutely terrific remainder of your evening and a fantastic weekend. And we will talk to you again Tuesday night right here on 1010XL for the next edition of Hacker After Dark beginning at 8 o'clock. Until then, good night, Jacksonville.